Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you probably know that I'm a big Disney fan. I have talked to a couple of the Imagineers that helped build the Disney theme parks. I've talked to Glenn Keane, who was an animator at Disney during the Disney Renaissance period through the 90s. And I've talked to a lot of my guests about their own Disney stories, usually about going to Disneyland or Disney World. But I mean, everyone from Ginger Z to Michael James Scott, who plays the genie in Aladdin now on Broadway, to John Tartaglia and Joshua Turchin, Emily Jacobson just a few weeks ago. I've, uh, I've talked a lot about Disney on this show. So as you can imagine, today's guest makes me very excited. Don Hahn is my guest today. He is kind of a legend in the Disney world. He started in animation and was an animation producer for a long time. He produced the hits Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, but also The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Emperor's New Groove, Atlantis. He produced a lot of the classic movies of that Disney Renaissance period. Then he went on to direct documentaries, doing a lot with the Disney Nature Unit, a lot of the films like Chimpanzee and African Cats and Oceans, Earth, all these films that were uh, done for Disney Nature. He produced those. And then he made a documentary about his time as an animation producer called Waking Sleeping Beauty that is phenomenal. And if you're a Disney animation fan, you have to see it. It's all about the history from the studio kind of falling on hard times in the 70s and 80s, and then that resurgence that happened starting with Little Mermaid. And Don has a new film that's just started streaming on Disney Plus a few months ago called Howard, and he both produced and directed Howard. It is a film looking at the life of lyricist Howard Ashman, who worked with Alan Menken on the soundtracks for Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, and Howard tragically died of AIDS back in 1991. And this is a long-form look at his life. So I've been really interested in Don's work, but Howard in particular, I wanted to dive deep into and really understand some of the creative choices he made in the film and why he chose to tell the story in the way he did. So we talk a lot about the new documentary, Howard, on Disney Plus in this interview, but we also talk a lot about his time in animation and some of those classic films, and we talk about the creative process in general. Don has been an author for a long time. He's written many books at this point. The one that really stood out to me and that I'm in the middle of reading right now is called Brainstorm, Unleashing Your Creative Self. It was published about nine or 10 years ago, but it is a really interesting look at how creativity works, how our mind works, and it's all about inspiring you as a creative to get out of your own world and, you know, get out there and create. So, it's a great book. Again, I'm in the middle of reading it right now, and uh, I recommend it. But all of Don's work is phenomenal. So we're going to talk about Howard, which you can go see on Disney Plus right now. Disney Plus also has Waking Sleeping Beauty, all the Disney nature films, of course, all the animated films. He's just done it all. And I'm excited to talk to him. I'm so thankful that he came on this show. Here it is, my interview with Don Hahn. So I want to start by just asking sort of generally about these last, you know, 10, 11 months, however long it's been, this this kind of quarantine period. What's it been like for you? Well, uh, you know, probably what it's like, been like for everybody, just, uh, you know, stressful and mind numbing. And, you know, on one hand, an opportunity to do a lot of 
things in uh, in life that have been left behind, like uh, you know, painting and writing and cleaning out the garage. Yeah. Um, and on, on the other hand, putting all those things off as much as I can. So it's a really odd time. I don't know. It's uh, obviously something that none of us have lived through before. So we're going one day at a time as we go. Yeah. Uh, on the the writing and painting side, has inspiration come easily? Or has it been a stretch to try to to get creative? No, it's come fairly easily. I, you know, I've had to stay away from the news at times because I think it can kind of take over your life because it's such a reality show going on, and um, it always has been. It's not necessarily about the news of the last few months, although that's intense. Yeah. But it's just the distractions of life, and I always I read a lot of biographies and try to understand what other people have done. And there's such a uh, some of the great people that I admire have such a unifying thing in their lives, which is they really are able to block out distractions mm. and really are able to kind of shut the shut the world out when they need to. Yeah. You know, even to some people to the point of saying, "I'm not going to go out to lunches anymore. I'm not going to do whatever because I have this task ahead." I have writer friends like that who just say, "Listen, I'm writing over the next three months." stay away from me. And uh, I admire that. We have to do that in our lives. I'll be slow to get back to emails, but (laughs) I'll be back online. Yeah, Yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Uh, Is there a certain type of biography that you gravitate towards or is it kind of across uh, across the spectrum? You know, for some reason, all my life I've gone after, um, well, biographies to begin with. I'm not kind of a, I'm not a big fiction guy, but biographies about artists and um, architects and people with an artistic background, because I feel drawn to it. uh, maybe because that's where my interests lie, but there's always plenty of uh, biographies about political figures or sports figures. And um, there's a few, but not that many about um, artistic heroes. And I I feel like I'm really drawn to those. In fact, I find in my own work and my documentaries that I'm making now, I'm really drawn to try to find people who are those artistic heroes. And, um, you know, what, who are the people that really make the world go around in terms of expression, whether you're a writer or a, uh, you know, a great painter or a chef or a poet or whatever, but who are those people? And so I really get drawn to those uh, biographies more than any. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, you know, obviously of this new film out, Howard, which looks at the life of Howard Ashman, but I, I certainly see the parallel with uh, one of your previous films as well, Waking Sleeping Beauty, which sort of looks at the uh, the Disney Renaissance period in animation. And, you know, they're both very interesting to me because they're not quite first person stories, but you are a character in them. Uh, and, you know, that they are about your own life experience, but you still sort of are able to treat yourself in the third person. And I just wonder, I guess, like, taking those subject matters on of, you know, somebody that you'd work closely with and a a movement that you were a part of, like, how do you begin to wrap your mind around that? And how do you not make it too personal? Well, it's good of you to notice that because I'm kind of the reluctant narrator of some of those movies. Yeah. And it's, it's on purpose. I feel like I can't, I was an eyewitness to a lot of things. I worked with Howard Ashman um, on Beauty and the Beast. So I know the story, and so I feel like I'm a qualified narrator and a qualified spokesperson, but the story's not about me. So if I can give you an entrance into the story, if I can give you a transition or a first-person kind of account of the story, that's one thing. But it's not about me. I'm not a ombudsman out there trying to you know, show you a, an outrage in the community or something like that. Right. I'm, I'm really just you know, someone to hold your hand and say, look, this is what I experienced, and I want you to sit at the same tables I sat at, and I want mm. you to be the, uh, be there to be... And I witnessed those things, but you don't have to turn around and say, 
well, Don Hahn, tell me more about your day and what did you have for breakfast that day? What, <laughs> right. You know, that's not what it's about. So maybe an odd kind of approach to it, but I, it's just who I am. And I, I find that the right approach because, again, I can give you a, a, a valid entree into the story without making it about me. Yeah. I was really interested, like, I, I didn't quite have the timing down, I guess, until I watched the documentary and realizing that, you know, Howard Ashman died of AIDS and he had been sick kind of during the whole process of making Beauty and the Beast. And not only that, but he came to that project late. I mean, like, I, I sort of knew the history with Mermaid and uh, and he and, uh, and Alan Menken were writing Aladdin sort of at the same time. And then they got pulled into yeah. Beauty. And I'm just curious, sort of like your relationship to him and sort of when you guys first met and, and what, you know, how he impacted you. Well, we met oddly at the, um, in Orlando, Florida at the Beauty and the Beast, uh, at the Little Mermaid press junket. Uh-huh. Uh, Little Mermaid was finished and the junket was in Florida. The Walt Disney MGM studio tour had just opened. And so the press came down there and screened Little Mermaid and was uh, part of the rollout of it. And Howard was there to share the movie. And uh, I had come there because we were showing Beauty and the Beast for the first time. And we had we had storyboarded about 10 um, or 20 minutes of the movie uh-huh. um, in, in you, London. You were showing it to the wait. press or you were showing it like internally? No, no, no. Just to executives. We were okay. showing it to Roy Disney and to Jeffrey Katzenberg and to Peter Schneider. And gotcha. People who are our executives in a back room, you know. So we had storyboarded it with a great director in England with a small group of people, Glenn Keane, Andrea Stasia. And that group of people had done a great job, but when we showed it, it didn't fire off at all. And but we showed it at that, you know, during that press junket and a break that everybody had. There was a small screening room in Florida, and we gathered there, and they all came in, and it just it laid an egg. You know, it just wasn't working. Yeah, and it was fine. It was not a bad telling of the story, but it was very much a kind of masterpiece theater, uh, more traditional, more perhaps European approach, and just not the not the buoyant kind of uh, approach that Little Mermaid was. Yeah, the concept art I've seen, it's like the big wigs and the, you know, very elaborate ball gown, the kind of Louis Fourteenth look almost, right? Yeah, very much, very much. And of course, Mermaid was done and was a huge hit. And it was um, interesting and funny and emotional and the music was great. And so in contrast to that, beauty would look even worse. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> and it, it's funny, it's traditional for every animated movie to bomb in its, in its first iteration. And that goes for everything. I mean, from Toy Story to Aladdin to Bambi to whatever, for some reason, animation, just creatively, you have to work the demons out of your body first uh-huh. until you get to the good stuff. And so it's it's typical, but unfortunate, these movies often get off to the wrong start. Um, so that's when I met Howard for the first time. And we uh, luckily were able to kind of talk him into working on beauty because Aladdin was stalled out also at the time in Story Hill. And what was it like, you know, bringing, bringing him onto that project? What, what influence did he bring to it? Well, you have to remember Howard was not just a lyricist. He was a dramatist. He was a director. He was a writer. He had just done not only Mermaid, but before that, Smile with Marvin Hamish, Hamish on Broadway. Before that, Little Shop of Horrors, yeah. which is a huge hit. So he was the real deal and a, and a complete package of a creative talent. So he brought to us more than just lyrics. He brought a sense of storytelling, character analysis. And then, uh, of course, at the end of the day, how do you use music and storytelling? How do you take the peak story moments of your of your movie 
and musicalize those because that in, in a musical, in a proper musical, that's what you do. You take the moment when the protagonist is falling in love or the villain is catching his plan and you turn those into songs. And that takes some bravery, you know, because sure. you think, oh, I'd, I'd rather have him just hatch his plan in a back room and talk about it. But no, no, you want to do that out front in a, in a musical moment. Well, he was incredibly learned about all that from birth. You know, I think he loved musical theater. And, uh, you know, he had a master's degrees from Indiana University in musical theater and, and, uh, and drama. And so he really understood it and could quote all that, quote the examples to us when we were working with him. How were, how were his notes? Like I could imagine being, if he comes in to do a job as a lyricist and he's giving you notes on sort of the full story or, you know, in the documentary, you talk about the shift to Sebastian, the crab, uh, you know, becoming a Jamaican character, like things like that. Like, were they well received or did it take people a while to sort of interpret them or, or, you know, get comfortable with them? I think uh, overall well received, but not, not just uniformly received. I think there was plenty of pushback on certain things and we were, you know, not afraid to have a dialogue about things at all. I, I think, you know, on Beauty and the Beast, uh, Howard wanted the prince to be a little boy at the beginning and have him cursed as a little boy. And uh, and the directors really felt strongly that just was wrongheaded because you feel compassion for a little boy and it's not his fault to be mm. cursed. And so, you know, there's a lot of give and take. And um, Howard was willing to do that. But you better bring your A game when you worked with him because he was... It's like a trial attorney, you know, like a really good attorney, yeah. able to support it with evidence and, you know, tell you why his ideas were well-founded. And they were, even though you might agree with, uh, disagree with them. So um, his notes were generally well-received. And of course, his songs were really well-received because he was such a clever lyricist yeah. and able to bring so many interesting, you know, turns of phrase to his songs. There's a quote in the film from Roy E. Disney who makes a comparison to his uncle, Walt Disney. And, you know, in watching Waking Sleeping Beauty, too, it feels like, especially animation at the time, kind of needed that figure. And I wonder if you agree with, with that characterization, that he was almost a Walt-like figure in ways. Yeah, I, I think he was. And I, I didn't know Walt. I knew Roy really well, and I knew Walt's daughter, Diane, pretty well. So you can imagine what he might have been like. But I think Walt was demanding and inspiring and uh, just enthusiastic about what he was doing to the point where he swept you along in his work. And I think uh, Howard had a lot of those same attributes. And he led by example. It wasn't just an executive coming in saying, okay, we have to make one movie a year and they need to be successful. And it was somebody who was in the trenches with us leading by ideas and by testing ideas and by pushing us to do our best work. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't alone in that. I mean, there were many of us, our directors during that time were brilliant. John Musker, Ron Clements, Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, all those directors were amazing. But Howard was a catalyst. He was the match in the gasoline tank. You know, he really helped that whole time come to fruition by his input. Yeah. I was interested to, you know, again, I, I sort of know the Disney piece and the music piece, but you dive deep into the film about his history as an actor, as a playwright, as a book editor, <laughs> an artistic director. I mean, he sort of yeah. had his hand in everything. And, you know, I, I guess I'm curious, like, you know, you I, I know you've thought a lot about creativity and, and wrote a book about it. Like, what do you think it takes to be successful at creative work? And, you know, in particular, sort of in Howard's case, like finding his voice through having all these different talents? Well, uh, it's a great question. 
I feel like, um, uh, you know, to be creative in any time, much less the hard times we're going through right now, people like Howard, people like the amazing people I worked with at, at Disney over these years is to make it about the work and to persist and to free, just, just break out of whatever boxes we may have in our head. I think when we're growing up, particularly, we place ourselves or are placed in a lot of boxes to say, oh, you're, you have to decide early in life what you want to do. You want to be a dentist. You want to be a architect, you want to be a um, office administrator. And those boxes can hamper us creatively for our whole life. So we can break out of some of those things and just say, my chosen field of creativity, whether it's a, you know, being an actor or a dancer or a chef or whatever, relies on me uh, opening my head and traveling and filling my bucket, you know, with uh, inspirations from around the world. And the thing is, the people I worked with that worked with Walt Disney, the animators, the, I was lucky enough to start at a time when the hallways were full of men and women who had worked with Walt. Yeah. They lived big lives. They weren't animation fans because they invented animation and they <laughs> came up with it, but they traveled and they wrote and they, you know, Mark Davis, the great animator, uh, traveled with his wife to New Guinea in the 50s when it was difficult. Um, uh, Ollie Johnston was into steam trains. Ward Kimball was into steam trains. And Dixieland Jazz and Frank Thomas played amazing piano. And Milk Call was a fly fisherman. They had these big, expansive lives that then they could bring back into their creative lives. Mm. And I think so often we get just into this small little place in our lives where we exist and that's not at all the way that these men and women were. And I find that really inspiring. And it's funny, I think, I mean, this is just Don philosophizing, but I feel like in, the, in, in a modern, more digital age, the world tries to give us what we want. So, you know, if I like Thai food, I'm going to get a lot of ads and things for Thai food. Sure. If I like a certain shirt, I'm going to get a lot of shirts on, you know, from that manufacturer. And I think that's absolutely the wrong thing to do in your personal life. Yeah because you want to go out and be uncomfortable. You want to travel. You want to go to a place where they're eating different things and singing different songs and uh, experiencing life in a different way, because that'll slap you in the face and wake you up to new ways of existing. That's what gets me excited. I, I'm luckily a really curious person. So was Walt Disney. So was Howard. Yeah. And he did ridiculous things. Like, you know, who would take a sacred story like The Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Andersen? You would set that in Denmark. Right. Howard said, no, let's set that in the Caribbean or, or The Little Shop of Horrors. It's like, let's take 50s girl group rock and roll and put it with this B. Roger Corman monster movie <laughs> and we'll do that mashup and it'll be great. Yeah. So those kinds of brave um, combinations or mashups or whatever were something that Howard was fearless about doing. And I think that's uh, kind of representative of what uh, what he brought to the process and what a creative life can be. Yeah. I, I want to get back to Howard in the film for in a minute. But, you know, as you bring it up, it, it makes me think of your own life and your own career and, you know, just sort of the, these ideas of labels. And, you know, when I try to think about how to categorize you yourself you're an animation producer, but you're a documentary producer, but you're an author, but you're a Disney historian. And, you know, like you, you have all these multifacets that most people want to see somebody as one thing. And, you know, I feel like that can even be hampering, like within careers. It's like, oh, well, you're that yeah. guy. You've got to do that 20 yeah. more times for me. Like, I wonder just how you've been able to sort of redefine yourself so many times and, you know, find all these different ways to express yourself. Oh, man, I'm probably attention deficit. Uh, <laughs> so there's that aspect of it. But I am curious. Even when I was younger, going to college, it's funny, I took 
I was a music major and I, you know, I have that in my background. I was a percussionist, hmm. but I also took history of religion and I also took art classes and I also took, um, you know, political science. And, and, and so I was always somewhat interested in all those different fields. I ended up in music because that's kind of where my heart was and, uh-huh. and where I lived my whole life. And my mom was a musician, but uh, you know, that curiosity again, kind of captured me and, and, and ran away with me and still does. And frankly, I get bored after a while. I had an amazing time in animation and don't regret a second of it. But I think had I continued to do that for the last 15 years or so, um, I would be brain dead by now. And I I feel like it's time for somebody else to do that. I had my chance. Let's see some great work now from Disney and Pixar. And uh, let's let Don go off and and try to do something else. And uh, some of that I learned from the guys at Disney. You know, they went off and did their own personal painting, uh, like Ivan Durrell, who styles... Sleeping Beauty or Mary Blair or Joe Grant, who was a good friend who wrote Dumbo and Lady and the Tramp. He, you know, went off and had a whole life as a um, designer and a greeting card designer and a ceramicist and all that. So their lives were about reinvention. And I thought, well, that's not a bad example for me. How do you get other people to buy into that? Like to say, I'm an animation producer, but I should make a nature documentary next. Um, it's not easy. And <laughs> right. uh, it's it's not easy in the industry either. Sure. You know, to say, hey, I'm, um, I made a lot of animated films and they were successful. And so even now I, I can pitch a film idea to like, just the other week I uh, pitched an idea to Netflix and they were wonderful about it, but they wanted to be an animated idea yeah. because that's what my background is. So you can't, I think at the, end of the, at the end of the day, you can't convince people in advance anyway that that's your new calling because I think people roll their eyes. You know, they, we've all come across people who are reinventing themselves and say, you know, my, my lifelong dream has been to be a concert pianist. And now in my 40s, I'm going to finally do that. Yeah. That sounds impossible. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. And I think the only way to break through that is is by doing, uh, not by talking. So when I started making documentaries 10 years ago, and I've probably made more documentaries than animated films now, I plugged into PBS. I, gosh, I went back to WGBH. I, you know, I, I I was on the board of, of PBS out here in Los Angeles. And the first documentary I made was called Handheld about a, a photojournalist in Boston who broke the story of Nicolae Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania, when the wall came down and and all of the atrocities were exposed in Romania, Mike Carroll was the first photographer in. And he's this Irish Catholic, amazing storyteller, Boston photographer, who knew nothing about Romania. And now, 25 years later, he runs one of the biggest charities for Romanian children's relief in the world. Wow. And that's an inspiring story. And that was a, I didn't know anything about Romania. And I right. knew Mike slightly because he had photographed for Disney all the time. He had photographed all the travel guides and for Disney Magazine and that. So I had met him once in a while. So it was a leap of faith to go out and do something like that. But I really believe in jumping into the deep end and trying it. And that ended up being a successful movie because my skill set worked. You know, everything I learned in animation, how to tell a story is what you do and I can take that and move it to documentaries I can move it to writing books I can move it around and it refreshes me yeah well getting back to Howard then for a minute you know I'm really curious about some of the the creative choices that you made in that film Um, one of them being that there's 
very few, if any, on-camera interviews. I mean, maybe like twice, but for the most part, yeah. it's all voices. And I wonder why you went that route. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, it, typically, you would see a lot of talking heads. You would see in a Ken Burns documentary, and I am a huge Ken Burns fan. Sure. So nothing wrong with this, but you would see a lot of talking heads telling you the history, plus a narrator filling in the blanks between talking heads. And I felt that's it's not as voyeuristic as I wanted to get. I wanted the audience to be there. And to be there, you needed to suspend disbelief enough by seeing, first of all, only archival footage. Yeah. So the movie is made up completely of horrible, scratchy old 1980s video footage, mostly. Yeah. And a lot of still. I mean, the majority of it's stills. There's very little video on there. A lot of stills. Yeah. Yeah. And so the narration aspect of it was the minute you cut away from that 80s scratchy video and stills to a pristine 4K beautiful interview of an old guy like me, it, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, it broke it all. Sure. You know, and, and God love us, but Alan Menken and Howard's family and all of us are not the same person we were. Yeah. 25, 30 years ago. Right. So it broke the uh, magic spell. And so I just left all that out. And I tried it. You know, I tried shooting new interviews and it just didn't work. The other thing I found too is when I didn't have a camera there and I didn't have lights and makeup, people opened up a lot more. Mm. And so from Jeffrey Katzenberg, from Roy Disney, from his family, Howard's family, I got much more vulnerable interviews by sitting in a big overstuffed chair with a microphone, because five minutes in, you forget the microphone's there right. and you're just having a talk. And so the movie is relevatory even more so than it might have been with talking head interviews because of that. And and so that's it's a bold, possibly ridiculous way to make a movie. But I thought it really got you emotionally involved in the story much more. Yeah, it was interesting, too, because, you know, there were voices in there like Roy Disney's, like Howard's, obviously, that would sort of come and go with you know an alan menken or something that like as you're hearing it you're i was questioning like oh wait is this a contemporary interview and realizing no these people are long dead <laughs> you know like just yeah. that was that was an interesting device that you could sort of you could play with time and sort of when different things were said well I, it, it goes back to something i heard from ken burns and he i've met him before and talked to him he said in an interview once when he was making the civil war documentary Lincoln, the moment he was assassinated, you know, before the gun was fired, he feels like he's brought this character back to life for the audience to experience. Yeah. And it's it's so real that you feel like that character is living and breathing again. Right. And in a way, that's a documentarian's challenge is to say, how can I bring these people back to life so you can spend an hour and a half with Howard Ashman? That's what I wanted to do. Howard's been gone a long time. Roy Disney's been gone, sadly, a long time. Yeah. But to bring their voices back and to let them talk again and let them breathe again is magical to me. And I, you know, I try to do it with great respect. I try to do it with authenticity and with honesty. I, I don't try to make a puff piece at all, but you still uh, want to, I want to have Howard tell his own story. It comes down to that. I want to have Howard, you know, wake up one day and tell the audience, listen, everybody, this is what happened. So that that's a, a big responsibility, but I felt like that was the right way to go on this movie. Yeah, it, it works really effectively, and it, you know, it just it, it caught me off guard. I was like, "Ooh, this is this is a really interesting way to tell it." Um, and you mentioned too uh, heavy use of archival footage and and mostly stills. 
But there are two sections in particular, at least that come to mind, of original footage. And uh, one of those is at the very beginning of the film, looking at Howard's childhood and as his sister is describing uh, worlds that he would create out of toys and things in their bedrooms. And then the other piece is at the end of the movie when Howard has died and it's time lapses of places in New York um, that were important to him. I think it's it's only New York in that sequence, as I recall. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, yeah. But why why original footage in those two sections? That felt like a choice as well. Yeah, definitely. I it could be a dark story. Yeah, it's about a um, an amazing creative man who died during the AIDS crisis, and a, a portion of the audience may know about the AIDS crisis, but not about the details of how much it took from us in terms of the creative community. Yeah. So I wanted to start out with something that was a little more buoyant, a little more, um, it captured the spirit of Howard more than just a journalistic documentary. And when, uh, Howard's sister, Sarah told me that story about, um, Howard creating these worlds underneath his bed, up in his room and telling stories in a funny way, we've, we've either all done that. We've all played those games. And so we can relate to it but it really showed the playful side of Howard and that he was, he was a storyteller from birth. So creating those little sets and, you know, I would send away on eBay and find 1950s Indian toys and things that were authentic to Howard's time period and build these little moments to try to say, Oh, this in her mind's eye in, in the audience's mind, let's set the stage with this optimistic little kid who's now going to go on a journey. And then, as you say, the journey ends in, you know, in New York with kind of, a curtain call of all the places he's been to. And he, you know, he passed away early in the morning. And so I set it all with sunrises. So it's, I didn't want to uh, make it maudlin, but it, it, it ends with the sun rising on New York, the sun rising on, you know, the theaters he was in, the buildings he was in, the studios he was in to show uh, as a metaphor that he lives on. Yeah. You know, it's probably too philosophical of a uh, explanation but I really do believe that. I really do believe that his creative spirit and the spirit of who this guy was and who we all are yeah. lives on to a certain extent after we die. And so that was my way of, of showing that, of showing that even now, you know, 30 years after his death, we're sitting here and talking about him. Right. And um, that's a, a wonderful thing. And I, that kind of optimism, I think, is something I wanted to bring to the end of the movie so it wasn't so dark. Yeah. It's interesting, even just the choice of time lapse there, too, as opposed to just, you know, a straight shot of the theater at sunrise. It's it's the mm-hmm. sun moving across all these different places. And, you know, you, you feel you feel a sense of time passing in a way, as you say, almost like, you know, in an eternal sense that, it, yeah, it's comforting. It worked. I like that. Yeah. And a lot of those choices are intuitive. You know, I, I don't um, wake up in the morning and say, Hey, I'm going to create a visual metaphor. Sure. Um, you know, you, it, it's it's a feeling like I don't want this to be too dark, and there are visual cinematic ways of telling a story that I want to experiment with. Yeah, I, I also wanted to ask you. You had directed and produced a film about Richard Sherman, um, who was you know famous songwriter in the '60s. He did Mary yeah. Poppins and Jungle Book. Uh, it's a small world. All this with his brother. I'm curious, just the. Uh, the parallels between the Sherman brothers and, uh, you know, Howard and, uh, and Alan Menken. Well, they knew each other and they were fans of each other. Richard Sherman uh, documentary came about because I kept seeing Richard play his songbook, but I saw him play it on cruise ships or at D23 conventions and nobody was recording Mm. and nobody was filming. And I thought this, this is all going to evaporate. 
and we're going to lose. It's like a library burning down. You know, right. you don't want to lose that. Yeah. Richard's still with us. Thank God. And yet I wanted to have him tell his stories. And, and it was as simple as that. And I, I called him up and I didn't really know him that well. And I said, hi, you don't know me, yada, yada. And um, we went out to lunch and I said, would you play your songbook for me and I'll get a stage and we'll film it. He said, sure. And so we worked together for several months at his house and decided what songs to play because his body of work is intense. It's yeah, huge. Right. Um, and then I got a, a, a terrific uh, recording studio that Frank Sinatra and Barbara Streisand used to use on Sunset Boulevard and put in the biggest, most beautiful piano I could find and brought in some singers to support him. And we, he went through his songbook and told all of his stories. And to me, it was a document, true documentarian's um, job. And I felt like even if this just goes on the shelf and nobody sees it, it'll be a record of this man's work. Right. And um, and that was a PBS documentary. PBS picked it up right away, and it's still available out there uh, on streaming services um, because of their support of it. So, you know, I, I I don't know why I do those things. I think it goes back to something we said a while ago, which is that idea of artistic heroes mm. and that, that idea of what people go through to create their craft and it's hard and it's, it's long and it's arduous and they threw out more songs on Mary Poppins than were in the movie. And so did Howard. And, you know, you, you, you go forward to like Lion King and Elton and Tim threw out more songs and, you know, it's a difficult, difficult task, whether you're a, a songwriter or a painter or whatever, but it's worth it. And that's the job. The job is to muscle through the difficulties of life to be able to express yourself and what it is to be human and to tell other human beings, whether it's in an audience or on TV or whatever, what your life is and what it is to walk in your shoes. And that's our job as creators. I'm curious, like on the, the idea of throwing songs out, like, sometimes these songs get revived you know that happened in beauty and the beast human again was uh, was this hit on broadway and it, it came back into the animated movie was was reanimated and you know i guess depending on which version you grew up with it's either you know the greatest thing in the world or you know a travesty against you know a classic <laughs> um right. but like just that artistic process like i don't know the backstory at all behind how that song got back in or you know the lion king there's there's an added song in it uh, in later releases like you know, if, if something doesn't work the first time, should it be thrown out? But by the same token, I learned from your film, like part of your world may not have lived in in Mermaid, you know, had Jeffrey Katzenberg had his way. Yeah. Um, most of the time when a song gets thrown out, it should stay thrown out. Uh, <laughs> and and there, but there was a time uh, when the commerce of show business dictated that it was fun to put bonus material on DVDs. Yeah. And so we did a lot of that. And you know, with mixed results, I, I will absolutely say guilty as charged because in some cases I like those songs. They're fun diversions, but in other cases you can kind of see why they were thrown out. So, uh, you know, it, usually the original versions of things tend to resonate more than anything, but, uh, you know, occasionally like uh, most famously on Broadway, Alan Menken would bring back songs. Aladdin is really full of songs that Howard wrote mm. in a very Cab Calloway style. You know, he was, the genie was meant to be um, African-American and full of Apollo theater kind of, uh, you know, sense of, of musicality and, and jelly roll Morton and that kind of thing. Mm. 
So that really came back in the Broadway version in a big way. Um, And and was the right idea because it's brilliant on Broadway. So um, you never know. Sometimes revisiting things is a stupid idea and sometimes it works. Yeah. I want to ask you too, I've been reading your book, Brainstorm, which is all about the creative process. And, you know, you talk about putting your all into the things that you're creating and expressing your passion in what you're doing. But at the same time, most of your work, almost all of your work, I guess, and, you know, anyone that's that's doing creative work professionally, there's a commerce piece attached to it. And, you know, yeah. there are deadlines and there, you know, Michael Eisner said we're going to have a film every year, or, you know, whatever the mandate is that, you know, you have to meet that whether or not the creative juices are flowing that day. And I, I wonder how you've navigated that over your career. Oh, man. Um <laughs> I, I'm an odd person because I'm a creative producer. Most people think of producers as financially driven, and that can be a part of a producer's job. But my approach was always about the music and the storytelling and, yes, the management of the movie, but pulling together great teams of people to tell the story and say, who's the best art director? Who's the best director? Who's the best writer? So it all has to be in service of something, and somebody has to pay the bills. And there's a tremendous pressure on films like Beauty and the Beast or on any film, frankly, to deliver on time. I've had films to completely fall apart, like Emperor's New Groove, and yet the, the release date didn't move. During Lion King, the Northridge earthquake happened. You know, look at the last year. A movie like Soul from Pixar was yeah. delivered from people's garages and back rooms and, you know, home offices. Right. So those challenges are there, but the deadline and the, and the need for commerce and business pays the bills, but also drives the artists to get something done. And without them, I would turn into you know this mushy, uh, milk toasty human being that would never get anything done. Right. And, and believe me, I have many projects that aren't <laughs> driven by deadlines that I just think, this is going to be the perfect book and the perfect painting. And they will go on for years. Right. So the deadline, uh, you know, you never really run out of money on a film. You just run out of time. And you, you know, great films are, are never finished. They're just abandoned, you know. And so you, you send them out to the public and you go, man, this isn't perfect, but I hope you like it. Yeah. And I've always felt that way. People ask, gee, did you know that, you know, such and such film would be such a huge hit? Not a chance. You know, we knew it was working. But like on, on Lion King, like who wants to see a movie about a lion cub that gets framed for murder in <laughs> Africa with music by Elton John? You know, that sounds awful. Or or like Ratatouille. Hey, let's put rats in a kitchen. Right. So those are horrible ideas for movies. But you take somebody like Brad Bird, who directed Ratatouille, and you take the sensitivity he brought to it and the fun and the, and the invention, and it's a classic. And I just love it. So you work under deadlines because that's what pulls out the best stuff. And you many times out of pure fear, you know, when, when little mermaid was done, I remember working on beauty and the beast thinking, man, our movie sucks and we have to live up to maybe at least we can be compared favorably to little mermaid. Yeah. Even as a group, as a group of artists in the nineties, I think we were trying to challenge ourselves to do work equal to Walt Disney's era. Now, whether we did or not is up for debate, but we thought this is our chance. It's a young young studio full of talent. This is our chance to do something that's equivalent to Snow White or Pinocchio or Bambi. And we tried. And so just that fear or that competitive nature is something that pushed us ahead over and above the commerce of it all. Because nobody comes to work on a movie uh, for a paycheck. Right. I mean, you know, yes, we need to pay the bills and that kind of thing. But you come because you're passionate about your craft or about 
uh, your skills or about your aspirations to write or paint or cook or whatever. And that's what brings you to the project. And those deadlines and those, those kind of commerce deadlines are your friend, really, not your enemy. Yeah, but I can imagine it must get to a point, too, where, you know, you talk about like the successes of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, and they just got exponentially bigger. I mean, jumping from Beauty and the Beast to The Lion King, you know, it's it's a huge difference. And then, you know, to, to see sort of what happened, you mentioned Emperor's New Groove, or, you know, there are films from the 2000s, like Home on the Range, Chicken Little. I haven't even seen them. and I'm like a Disney fan. And yeah. just every time I'm about to sit down, I'm like, I, I just, I'd rather watch something else right now. But like, you know, that that baseline becomes an expectation, right? That like when you have a Lion King, the thought is that, you know, Pocahontas or Hunchback or whatever's next is going to be, a, you know, a Lion King times, you know, 1.5 yeah. or 2. Yeah, we really felt that. We really felt that. And our, our executives who were terrific, you know, people like Roy Disney said, you know, we can't expect to hit these Grand Slam home runs all the time it's going to be enough to hit stand-up singles. You know, it's going to be enough to do satisfying, tell satisfying stories and to expect Lion King, which is a once in a lifetime thing uh, is unrealistic. And yet you, you say, yeah, yeah. But inside you go, yeah, but I think we can beat it. (laughs) So you try, you try because that's what we do as human beings. We try and we're competitive. And so sometimes, you know, artistically, I think sometimes we did. You look at Pocahontas and it's beautiful. It's an amazing artistic masterpiece. And other movies are, you know, New Groove is a great comedy and has become a cult movie if you're of a certain age. But they weren't that popular in their time. And and it's, it's why studios like Pixar or even Marvel are amazing because Pixar has had a few uh, underperforming movies that didn't quite hit with the audience. But if you look at Soul, uh, Pete Doctor's movie, it sure. is sophisticated and interesting and beautifully crafted, but heartfelt. Yeah. And um, I don't know, you think, wow, these guys understand storytelling, as as we all do. That doesn't mean anything. You can go to USC film school. That doesn't mean anything. Right. You have to be able to execute. And um, so that's why uh, studios like Pixar are... Uh, a marvel to a degree because they've been able to come to a point where they're brutally honest with each other. They create in a, in a place of positive exchange of notes and ideas and uh, try to push the movie to its highest level. And that's what we all should do. I wonder how you manage that though. Just like, you know, I think of how Pixar started and it's this kind of core group of, you know, a handful of artists that just know each other. And as you say, are brutally honest with each other. But when you get to, you know, one or two films a year, you have to grow a business to a certain scale. And I just, I I don't know that I have a specific question for you other than just, it is a challenge, I think, to maintain that culture, to maintain that quality control, regardless whether you're talking about animation or, you know, a a manufacturer, you know, making some widget, right? Well, there's an expectation from the audience. And I, 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 you know, we lived through that and Pixar has too, where you we were making princess musicals for years and you could pretty much rely that the second song in the movie would be an I want song from the princess telling you what she wanted in life. And when the audience starts to recognize those patterns, it's time to move on. Yeah. But the audience may not want you to move on. And more importantly, the studio who's financing it may not want you to move on because they're going, <laughs> why would you ever do anything other than a princess movie? These right. are making huge amounts of money. But even, um, even Walt Disney, even every filmmaker wants to creatively move on and try new things. And um, that's what we did. So when you look at the era of New Groove or Atlantis or Treasure Planet, all of which are good movies, 
it was us saying, you know, we've made a lot of fantasy land movies. Can we please turn left at the end of Main Street and go to Adventureland? Yeah. Can we please do, you know, Journey to the Center of the Earth like Atlantis? And luckily the studio was supportive because they saw artists not losing interest, but losing passion maybe. And it was easy to get passionate about an Adventureland movie. And it was very much in the pocket of what Walt Disney did. And those movies were received with various amounts of success. But um, you have to try those new things. And that's, it goes back to something we were talking about a while ago, is how do you reinvent yourself as a human being, as a creative, as somebody who was a animation person and now is a writer, or you know, you were an accountant and now you're a painter or whatever it is. And it's hard and there's going to be perceived disappointments, but you still have to try because otherwise you're, you're an automaton kind of turning out the same thing again and again. And we could have turned out princess movies to this very day, but I, I have to say even movies like Frozen, which are definitely princess movies, are really inventive in terms of the kinds of plot that they have, pushing female characters to be stronger um, you know, pushing people of color to be stars in the movies. All those things are valid and important. Uh, and it comes out of creatively trying to push yourself. And, and it's very hard because, you know, what it, I always call it Dumbo syndrome because, you know, once Dumbo jumped off the diving board and flew around the arena, they said, well, if he can jump off of that, let's have him jump off something that's 10 <laughs> times higher, yeah, you know? Right. And uh, so that Dumbo syndrome uh, is everywhere in corporate America. You want to exceed yourself. But sometimes the very thing you need to do is exactly the opposite or something really different from what you've been doing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned Soul, too. And I was thinking of Pete Doctor's other film, Inside Out, that both of them are just they're super complex. But they're films that my kids will watch on repeat and just adore. And my kids are seven and four. And, you know, for yeah. me, like growing up with Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, like I can watch those now as an adult and just still love them. But it's interesting because the target audience of most of these films really is kids. And I wonder like how you balance or how you balance that need for creativity and expansion, but also not not going over your audience's head and sort of knowing that, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's six and seven year olds that are going to have this thing on their VCR or DVD player or whatever on yeah. loop 20 times. Well, it's funny. We never made movies for kids and we still don't, you know, I, it feels like the movies are for kids, but they deal with very wide ranging topics. And yes, they're for kids. Of course you want your you know child to learn lessons from these movies and enjoy them as pieces of entertainment. But they're, they're also valid for, you know, we found out Aladdin and those movies, uh, our date movies. And so is soul, you know, if, if you could go out to the movies right now, it would be packed with a, a wide ranging audience. And that comes from Walt Disney. And that comes from, if you make something purely for a certain age group, it, it just cuts off its opportunity to break through to a larger audience. And, and so inevitably on every movie I've worked on, people say, well, what's the, what's the target audience for this? Is it boys, boys, you know, teenage, teenage boys. And, and I would always push back on that and say, no, it's, you know, this is an adventure movie, but girls like adventure too, you yeah, know? Right. And, um, but there's so much pressure, whether it's for toys or consumer products or whatever, to put you in a pocket again, just like this pressure to put you individually into a pocket. And I really resist that because you have to. And so the movies were made for a general audience. Yes, children watch them. Yes, my daughter, you know, watch those movies on repeat as well as yours. But, um, 
we really try to make them for a general audience because they are sophisticated. And some things in soul, for example, will go over the kids' heads. And yet as an adult, you sit there and you cry because it's so emotional. Right. Wrapping up, I just, you know, we've been talking about Howard Ashman a lot and sort of where where your your career and his career intersected was Beauty and the Beast. And thinking about, you know, theme park expansion, both in Florida and Tokyo, has been all about Beauty and the Beast over the last decade or so. You know, there was the live action film. It was the film that, that launched Disney on Broadway. Like, what is that? feel like and <laughs> just like from a legacy <laughs> standpoint i guess like just it's got to be crazy to think this this little thing that you did for you know whatever a year or two back in the early 90s just has this whole other life now yeah well it's not don han's legacy it's a a group of people i was lucky to be there and and produce some of those movies but they're not yours after they're done uh it's like children you know they're you, they're yours my daughter's in her you know mid-20s now and at a certain point, I looked at her and thought, she's still my little girl, but she's her own person. You know, mm-hmm. she's this beautiful, smart, and interesting person with her own needs and her own desires. And that's what movies are like. You have to let go of them. And um, so it's amazing. It's humbling. I went to Florida and went through Belle's house yeah. and met Belle, not as a VIP. I just went through as just like somebody in the crowd. And then afterwards, I went up to Belle and I said, hi, well, I, um, you know, we talked a little bit and she never broke character. And <laughs> But I was so moved by the fact that this can still exist so many years later. Not every artist uh, or filmmaker has that in yeah. their lives. And um, the fact that Lion King, when it comes back again, will play in eight countries around the world every night of the week is uh, humbling. So the, the truth, though, and I think we all feel this way, is once it's out there, it becomes as much yours as it does mine and you own it and you, your children take that to bed with a toy or a backpack or, you know, whatever. And that becomes their movie. So uh, really proud, really humbled. And it it is really odd because I'll have little girls show up at the, at the door for Halloween dressed like Belle. And you remember like the day we sat around with cold pizza and, you know, talked about, well, what should Belle wear? And, and, well, how about this ball gown and the whole idea of her dress warming up through the movie as, as her heart warms up to the beast. And mm. all those conversations come to roost again. And this little girl's wearing the results of that. And um, that is, I'm not sure I can put that into words. All right, there we go. Don Hahn. <laughs> how about that? I got goosebumps at the end there. That was wild. Just thinking about the legacy of this little creative project that, has lived on and just, you know, continued to evolve with all of us. After I talked to Don, I uh, was putting my seven-year-old daughter to bed that night and looked at her and she was wearing bell pajamas. And I've never had the experience of having something that I put out into the world live on in such a big way. I can only imagine what that's like for Don and, you know, the other creatives that have worked on all these different projects. But as he says, it's no longer the people that made it. At some point, it belongs to the audience and it belongs to all of us. And, you know, I'm grateful that, uh, that Don has shared that all with us. If you haven't yet seen it, go check out Howard. It is streaming now on Disney+. Plus. It is a really interesting film. It's a great look at Howard's life. And it's not just a Disney story. It goes back to the beginning through his childhood, through his New York theater years, and then up, obviously through the Disney chapter as well. But 
it's a really comprehensive film. And as we talked about here in the interview, lots of very interesting creative choices made in it as well. So go look for that. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. I will be back with a new show on Monday. If you're a subscriber to the newsletter, you'll be the first to find out who the guest is and what we're going to be talking about. So go to heathrasella.com and your email address there and get that newsletter in your inbox every Sunday. I will talk to you on Monday. Stay safe.